If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 13? 2 Kings chapter 13, we're going to look at the first uh, nine verses, and we're continuing our study through the book of 2 Kings, and uh, we're going to look at a crisis faith. And uh, the focus moves from Judah to Israel in the reign of Jehu's son Jehoaz. And uh, here in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 13, there in your Bibles, uh, it's no surprise, you know, you think about this, Jeroboam was a model for this man that we're going to talk about. And uh, uh, Jehoaz's father had done the same thing. Jeroboam, if you remember, was a man whom God promised him. He says, you will have a continual, perpetual person sitting on the throne of Israel, the ten tribes, because by then Israel had already split with Judah and Benjamin uh, for what is noted as Judah in the Bible. And then Israel, uh, there in these historical books, uh, is no, Israel is noted as being the ten tribes. Nevertheless, Jeroboam, he didn't want to lose his power, so he created uh, idolatrous worship, Baal worship, there in these ten tribes, and uh, took a lot of the Israelites. He didn't want to go back to Jerusalem because he didn't want to lose his power. He didn't want to lose his political ability to influence, and so he would remove them uh, by keep getting their eyes focused on idols rather than God. And uh, he would set up a golden calves. Here in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse, first nine verses, In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and reigned seventeen years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria. And into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, all their days. And Jehoaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents, as before time. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin, but walked therein, and there remained the grove, also in Samaria." Neither did he leave of the people to Jehoaz, but fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz and all that he did in his might are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoash's son reigned in his stead. The people of Israel really shouldn't be surprised when the Lord brought the Syrians against them. Because they knew the terms of the covenant. Israel had made a promise, much like a husband and wife make there on the marriage altar, I do, until death do us part. And Israel makes this promise, all of Israel, all 12 tribes, makes a promise to God that they will be faithful to Him, that they will stay true to Him, that they will follow and worship to Him, they will worship no other idols, and yet the ten tribes of Israel, now separated under Jeroboam and now coming to Jehoaz, they give themselves over to idolatry. Now, if a husband and wife, if one of those spouses cheats on the other spouse, does that make the relationship better or worse? Well, clearly it would make it worse. The person would be hurt. There, there would be separation in relationship. There would be all sorts of drama. Why? 
because you're showing an unfaithfulness to the other spouse. You made a promise that I'm going to say no to everyone else and yes to you. And so oftentimes in our relationship with God, we say yes to everything else and no to God. And then we, when things go bad, we wonder why are things bad? Leviticus chapter 26, verse 17, and I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies. God says, listen, here's what's going to happen if you're unfaithful to me. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. So he's saying in Leviticus chapter, turn with me to Leviticus 2016. 26, 2016, there's a new number for you. Leviticus chapter 26. You know, we wonder many times in our lives, why is life so difficult? But I, if we deviate from God, he's already told us there's going to be challenges. There's already, and so that is where we live in a fear of God. And, and I'm not talking about, uh, you know, we ought to live with the idea that we're going to be, there's consequences for my actions. If, I'm, if, if, if a spouse is unfaithful to their spouse, they ought to understand that my spouse is going to have problems with me. They're not going to be able to trust me. There's going to be issues there. And a person might be like, why are they acting so crazy? Because you're, you're, I mean, you're tearing their heart out because of unfaithfulness. And God's heart is torn out. And then we wonder, God, why is my life so bad? Could it be that I'm being unfaithful to him? Leviticus chapter 26, verse 25. So I said, first verse, 20, uh, verse 17, you know, the latter portion of this, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. He says, listen, you're going to be afraid, you're going to be living in anxiety. Maybe those who have a lot of anxiety disorders, could it be, and I'm just asking the question, I'm not making an assertion, but I'm asking, could it be that someone is living in opposition of God? In verse 25, And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant, and when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And, and, and this is all the punishment in chapter 26 is punishment for disobedience. No relationship where there's un, a, a true relationship. There is no stronger relationship than between a husband and a wife. I mean, there's nothing more intimate, nothing more uh, uh, close to your heart, nothing that can literally shred your heart. And God's heart aches as he's jealous over Israel. In verse 33... And I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Speaking of this, I've got a video tonight that I'm, it's going to accompany uh, Revelation chapter 12 about Israel being scattered and the promises of this throughout history on Israel's existence. It's an amazing video. I'll show it to you tonight. But uh, anyways, as you think about this, scattered among the heathen. There are Jews all over this world today. Look at verse 36. And upon them that are left alive of you, I will send a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies, and the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them. Now, how many of you have ever been in the bush and the leaves are rustling and you're like, oh. <laughs> you know, and, and he's saying, listen, you're going to be afraid of that which isn't even there. 
And they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursueth, and they shall fall one upon another as it were before a sword when none pursueth, and ye shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And ye shall perish among the heathen, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. God's saying, listen, wherever you're going, your enemies are going to make your life difficult. God's protection is removed. You see, when you're in that, in a, in a good relationship, husband and wife, one another's looking out for the other person. Looking out for their emotional well-being, their security, and trying to protect one another. And the husband leading and trying to protect his wife and the family and make sure they're okay. When that relationship starts to be cut apart and separated because of unfaithfulness, my, how it affects a lot of people. And all sorts of thoughts come through our minds. And here is Israel as they've been unfaithful to God. And God says, listen, life's going to get very difficult for you. You know, people still believe the lie today that Satan gave, you shall not, you know, you shall not surely die. Do whatever you enjoy, because there are no serious consequences to sin. Whether to chasten or bless, God is always true to his word, and you think upon these very truths. God is trying to get Israel to understand, please, please, I don't want any more pain. I don't want you to hurt yourself. I don't want the enemies to come after you. I want to be a father to you, and I want to hold you close, and I want that intimate, loving relationship. But would you stop going to everyone else and just be to me? The situation becomes painfully desperate as Jehoaz cries out to God for help, just the way Israel had done during the period of the judges. And you would find here, uh, God answered the prayer uh, here in 2 Kings chapter 13. Let's read a little bit further here. In the 30 and 7th year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He made Israel sin, but he walked therein. And, uh, <clears throat> and you think about this. In verse 22, But Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. In verse 23, and the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and had respect to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, neither cast he from them, cast them from his presence as yet. And we find here in this scene, Haziel died. Haziel, the king of Syria. His successor, Ben Hadad, was a weaker ruler. So it was possible for someone to help break the iron grip of Syria over Israel. At some point, the Assyrians who began to attack Syria in the days of Ben-Hadad, and they weakened his power. So he also, the, the enemies of, of Israel had enemies. The enemies of Israel had enemies of themselves. And uh, deliverance came through one or both of Jehoaz's successors, Jehoash and Jeroboam II. And uh, Israel would dwell in the tents. Now, here's the thing. Did the promise blessing of God change the king? Did God's deliverance from the hand of the Syrians, how many of you in your life, 
You've been at a, I mean, just a horrible, desperate situation. And you cry out to God, and then he helps you. And then you find yourself so quickly going back to the very situation that puts you in that bad situation in the first place. Have you ever done that? I, I know I have. Verse 6, Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. People see the hope of deliverance. The pain eases up. And they forget the very God that delivered them. The Syrians left Jehoaz with a mock army that was more of an embarrassment than it was an encouragement. And God promises, if you'll trust me and obey my word, the enemies will flee before you. Deuteronomy 28.7, Deuteronomy 32.30, Leviticus 26.8. God makes promises. He says, listen, if you'll just trust me, the enemies will flee. Let's look at here, Deuteronomy 28.7. I'll show you some of these promises. You see, Christian, God wants our entire heart. Lean not on thine own, right? Trust the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. In Deuteronomy 28, 7. The Lord shall cause an enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. You know, if an enemy is scattering more than one way, they're retreating in absolute terror. Deuteronomy 32.30, here's another passage for you. This is what God is promising Israel, and this is all, ten, all 12 tribes, excuse me, uh, during Moses' reign, during Moses' uh, ruler, you know, his, when he uh, ruled over Israel and led them. Deuteronomy 32.30, how should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock, Look, notice with me, it's capitalized, their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. <laughs> you know, and their wine is a poison of dragons, the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed among my treasures? To me belongeth vengeance and recompense, which is kind of re revenging, right? Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people, and repent himself for his servants, when he seeth that their power is gone, and there's none shut up or left. And he shall say, where are their gods, their rock, in whom they trusted? And, and so the question is, you know, when, when the people are finally done trying to resort to their own, if you would say, their own mechanisms their own resources to fix their problem, and instead, they say, God, I just want you. God, I want you to fix my problem, because obviously my solutions aren't working. And, and so this is the crisis faith. So oftentimes, you kind of, you know, these foxhole conversions, or, or someone, I've had many, many times, and I'm sure you've experienced this, Pastor, please help me. Life is horrible. Would you pray with me, Pastor? It's so bad. And then, when whatever it was is creating such emotional trauma in their lives, and that subsides, and the, and the pressure is not on them, they're gone. You don't ever see them again. How genuine was that desire? You know, many times we want the pain away without the God who heals the pain. 
I don't want, I don't want that relationship with God. I just want God to release all the pain that I'm suffering. But I don't want that intimate relationship with him. I don't want to get to know him. I don't want to do day by day and moment by moment in his presence. I just want the pain to go away. It's like I want the emergency light, I want the check engine light on my car to go away. You know, oftentimes when a check engine light comes on, you're like, ah, well, take off the battery cables, leave it off for a few seconds, put it back on, boom, check engine light's gone. Woo! Problem's gone. No, you just turned it off until it comes back on. But the check engine, there's still a problem with your engine, most likely. And God is saying, check engine light in your life. And that pain that you're feeling, God would use with Israel to say, listen, you need me. You don't just need me to relieve the pain. You need me to keep you from the pain that you got yourself into. You ever heard someone in the hospital say, Pastor, if God heals me and gets me out of here, I'll be the best Christian you've ever seen. They get healed, and you never see them again, or you only see them for a very short time. Well, to them, God is some genie in a lamp. Not a relationship to walk with in life. How many times can we call on the Lord when we're in trouble and then ignore Him when we're safe? There are so many times I've seen people and God begins to work. And they begin to, man, they're getting it. They're on fire for Jesus. And then a job or a relationship happens. Well, I'm just too busy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I just don't have time for church. I don't have time to read my Bible. And you can bank on it. Down they're going to go again. Because they're leaving the very source of life. They're, they're removing themselves from the vine. I am the branches, he is the vine. He that abideth me and I in him, same bringeth forth much fruit. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. A lot of people want us to pray for them, but if you're not willing to advance towards a relationship with God, the prayer is just empty words. You know, if I, if I just told my wife, I love you, but I never spent any time with her, the only thing I ever did tell her is I love you, we didn't sleep, in the same bed. We slept on the other side of the house. I slept upstairs. She slept downstairs. This is, doesn't happen, but I'm just saying if that happened, do you think that relationship is going to grow or is it going to separate? It's going it's to get further apart because relationships take time. It takes dialogue of talking. It takes seeing that that person legitimately takes an interest in what I'm interested in. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24, because I have called, Proverbs 1, 24, because I have called and ye refused, I stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have said it not all my counsel with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me. Now notice with me what it says next. But I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. 
They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple. The simple person is a person that doesn't want the relationship with God. The person that doesn't want to know God. Doesn't want God to reveal from his word really the depths of their own heart, their own heart's wickedness. You know we're all wicked. And day by day, God, Jesus, is making me more like himself as I try to get to know him. The turning of the way is simple, shall slay them, the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me, whoever listens intently unto me, what does it say here? Shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Do you ever go to bed at night? Afraid, fearful. Can I tell you yesterday when I went up to Tadouli, I was I was really nervous because my first time up there, I got I was supposed to be there two hours back in New Year's Eve of this year, of last year to this year. And I my two hour time to do the the uh, <laughs> the funeral ended up being four days. I was stuck, I was up there for four days. And I was like, man, I don't want to be up there four days. And I got I had an opportunity to do a service and ministered, and, and that was wonderful. But you know what? I had my own plans. <laughs> and I was like, God, I really don't want to do this. And then yesterday when they told me that I wasn't, you know, they had chartered a flight, pick me up here, go up there, but they didn't plan to drop me back off in Thompson. I was like, okay, Lord, <laughs> what have you got for me now, you know? And I was just like, so I asked, you know, I go up to the chief and I ask him, Chief Jason Buzzador, and I said, can I, uh, if I get a rental car, you know what an opportunity gave on that ride back from Winnipeg to Thompson? The young man that I was with, he's been searching for truth, searching about God. He gave me an opportunity. I was kind of fearful. I'm just being honest. I'm being transparent. I was kind of like, Ugh. I, I, that idea of being totally out of control. You, you can't get out of here. There's nothing you can do. I don't like that position. I don't think any of us do. Where you're out of control. You don't know what you're doing. And you're totally just going by faith. <laughs> and it's uncomfortable. But as I look back, I rejoice at an opportunity, you know, to give the gospel to a man that had really never heard it. And God had to show me, listen, <laughs> you didn't know how this day was going to go. You thought you're going to be stuck here, which I was like, well, if I'm stuck here, I'm going to do a church service. Because they don't have anything going on up there. But... God had someone that he wanted me to witness to and, and build a relationship with. and <laughs> You know what? It's of trusting God. And, and I'm not trying to lift myself up because I'm actually trying to say I was fearful. I don't like that feeling of being completely out of your control. In Isaiah chapter 56, 55, excuse me, Isaiah 55. Notice what it says here in Isaiah 55, 6. Seek, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. So there's an acknowledgement of your own wickedness. And the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. 
he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Many people say, well, God won't want me back because I've messed up too bad. But that is not true to the scriptures. God abundantly pardons. God will have mercy. You know, many times we live like Adam and Eve, and the kings of Israel, they live like Adam and Eve, living in shame, hiding from God. Rather than coming back to God, confessing all the errors of my wickedness, acknowledging that what God calls wicked is wicked, and then he gives me mercy and forgiveness. And that relationship is restored. And so often Israel, and I would say so often you and I, rather than making it right, we continue to try to perpetuate our wickedness. Rather than just saying, God, I miserably failed. And I need you. God, the way I've been living is not right. And I am sorry. I'm not just sorry because of the pain I feel, but I'm sorry for what I've done to you. I'm sorry I've broken your heart. When it says, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, his heart matters to you. His heart, and whether I break his heart, is of concern to me. It's not just my situation and my pain that I'm feeling. I'm concerned about how it makes him feel. And this is the error of Israel's kings, of an ignorant faith. Coming back to 2 Kings 13, for some reason the death of Jehoash is mentioned twice in 2 Kings 13 verse 10. In the thirty and seventh year of Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, to reign over Israel and Samaria, and reigned sixteen years, and did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He parted not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel, to, Israel sin, but he walked therein. And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did in his might, wherewith he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book, the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne. Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. How many times do you have to beat your head against the wall expecting a different result every time, only to get the same result every time? He, his great defeat of Amaziah, king of Judah, is mentioned before it's described, but the most important thing about Joash was that he had a sense enough to visit the prophet Elisha, and uh, he followed his father's example of Jeroboam. He was a wicked king. He visited these golden calves. He turns to the Lord only when he's in trouble and time's running out. Now verse 14, Now Elisha was fallen sick of a sickness whereof he died. Joash the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face and said, Oh my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bows, bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. He said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put... His hand upon it, and Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground, and he smote thrice, three times, and stayed. The man of God was wroth at him, and said, thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. 
Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And Elisha died, and they buried him. The bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming of the year. And it's too bad spiritual leaders aren't appreciated during their lifetime. You know, many times you don't realize how wonderful someone is until they're gone. You know, it could be an individual in the church, kind of a, maybe a back person, I'd say back seat, but a, a person that's just kind of behind the scenes. And, and they're not really, you don't really notice them. But when they're gone, you notice them. They're not putting themselves out there, but in the spiritual leader here, Notice with me, he's saying, oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen there. He's saying, oh, Elisha, Elisha, how am I going to do this without you? Well, you've been doing a pretty awful job without me and without God in the first place. Why is it now that I'm about ready to die, now you're actually concerned for my life? Now you're concerned for the words I had to speak. The Pharisees were better at building tombs for the dead than they were at sharing, you know, showing thanks for the living. They had the Messiah right before them. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am. They had God with them. Emmanuel, God with us. And they wanted to murder him. And they did. You know, <laughs> this crisis faith. I'm thankful for senior servants, people, you know, just believers that go through the years. They're just faithful. Nothing significant that you would note about them, but yet they're a blessing and encouragement. Elisha was like a father to the nation, to both nation of Judah and nation of Israel. He knew this king was in trouble. And he still gives him another chance of mercy, saying, listen, you're gonna you can defeat the Syrians if you'll listen to me. And this king was not a man of faith. He could follow directions, smite the bow, smite the arrows on the ground, boom. You know, shoot it, boom. Okay. I'm only doing absolutely what I must do, but nothing more. It's not that I'm wanting to do a whole bunch for God. I mean, if he says, if you smite the, you know, you smite the arrows and you can defeat the Syrians, how many times do you want to smite them? I'm thinking like, you know, let's smite those arrows. I mean, that's got to be like a hundred times. Let's just annihilate. Let's quit them from that enemy coming back. You know, it's kind of like, again, there's this idea that I can still defeat these enemies that are coming against me. I'm no match. My, my rock is, my creator, my savior, he is a man. He's a complete victory. This much the king could have understand because Elisha gave him a clear promise of victory. Take these arrows, strike them on the ground. And however much you smite, you'll smite the Syrians. You know, shooting one arrow guarantees victory. The number of times he smites the ground is his determination of how many victories God would give them. Three should be enough, right? 
His faith was ignorant. He had limited himself. Here's another thing. Elisha was sick. And he, <laughs> I mean, he really expresses a righteous anger at the king for his ignorance and his unbelief. He says, listen, king, can you not just believe God? In Ephesians 5, 17, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. That's there in Ephesians 5, 17. It's not enough to simply know God, know His will, and obey it out of duty. It's important for us to know God and know His will and understand God's will for my life and understand my obedience. Have you ever had a young child or a kid come up to you and you tell them to do something and then they're like, why? 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 You're like, because it's the best thing for you. Like, if I go into the whole dialogue of why it's not good, you're not going to understand it, so just do it. And God tells us to do some things sometimes, and we don't always understand why. But if we understand his heart, that he has my best interest at stake, I'll just want to follow. And he receives an encouragement. He says, listen, you will defeat these men. The prophet Elijah never died. He was caught up to heaven, much like Enoch. And he would win three victories, verses 22 through 25 here. But Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz, and the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, had respect on them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them. Neither cast he them from his presence as yet. So Hazael, king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his stead. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father by war. Three times did Joash beat him, recovered the cities of Israel. The very promises that God gave. However many times you strike, I'm going to give you those victories. God was true to his word. And God is always true to his word. The Lord enabled him to increase in his military power, overcome the Syrians, led by Ben-Hadad II. In the year 722 B.C., Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, and the temple would have been destroyed, the first temple, Solomon's temple. During the reigns of Jehoash and Jeroboam II, really the kingdom of Israel, the, nation, the northern kingdom, reached its pinnacle. And in all of its achievements in wealth and power and politics, it was filled with idolatry and sin. You know, we like those mountaintop experiences. We better be careful on that mountaintop experience that I'm not turning my eyes away from God. That I'm not like, oh wow, look at what I've done. Look at me. Look at how wonderful I am. Because <laughs> every mountaintop has a cliff to come down. And it hurts. When you think about this, a focus on faith. These kings would get their eyes 
only on God when life was unbearable. My friend, God is not a genie in a lamp. Rub it three times, poof, I'll give you your three wishes. That is a very pagan, idolatrous way to look at God. He wants that close relationship. If you want to think about God, you can think about him of the illustration of a husband and wife being faithful to one another. There's sweetness when you're faithful. And there's a whole lot of drama when you're unfaithful. So how about we, you know, as you think on this, I know this is Sunday school, but as you think on this focusing on faith, consider in our lives, maybe there's some things in our lives that <laughs> we're suffering, we're struggling. Could it be that maybe I'm relying on myself, I'm relying on some idolatries, I'm, I'm relying on some things that God calls sin. And I'm now reaping or getting the harvest of the sin I've sowed. If you put a seed in the ground, you expect, you know, if I put corn seeds, I expect to get corn. If I put sin in the ground, I expect to get consequences of sin. And that's the very thing. Let us pray, and we'll be dismissed and come to the morning hour for 11 o'clock. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for your wonderful goodness and grace. Lord, thank you for the word of God. And Lord, you're an amazing Father, a wonderful Savior. And Lord, I'm always thankful that that door is open for pardon and mercy. And Lord, whatever it is in our lives that is causing us to go astray, and Lord, maybe we're feeling quite a bit of unrest in our lives. Lord, if there's any sin, I pray that we'd forsake that. And Lord, with open, transparent, humble hearts, we confess the sin. Lord, we'd be concerned about your heart. Lord, I love you and I thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless.